Namaste, this is Deepali Kulkarni. I am the Director of Human Rights with the Hindu American Foundation. And I'm here today with two very special guests, Rajiv Pandit and Siddhi Rena. Rajiv Pandit was born and raised in Srinagar, Kashmir, before moving to the U.S. with his family as a child. He spent many summers returning to Kashmir until 1989, the last summer prior to the start of the ethnic cleansing and forced exodus. He currently lives in the Dallas area where he works as a physician and also advocates on behalf of Kashmiri Hindus, known as the Pandits. Siddhi Reina was born and brought up in the Bay Area, California. She currently lives in San Francisco, pursuing her bachelor's in business management at the University of San Francisco. Having been born into a Kashmiri Hindu family living in exile, she yearns to visit Kashmir to see what her family grew up around. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us, Rajiv and Siddhi. Thank you, Dipali. Hi, Siddhi. Thank you for the introduction. Well, uh, before we get into it, I just want to get to, I just want our audience to get to know both of you a little bit more. So Rajiv, let me start with you. Can you tell me a little bit more about your family's background in Kashmir? What did your father's family do and what about your mother's? So yeah, I was born in Srinagar and my father was, uh, lived on a farm. We, uh, his family grew up in the Bahibug village in the Bulwama district. And they, that's famous for, that area is famous for rice, uh, saffron, and their rich milk. And uh, they had about 50 acres, which is, was a lot back then in, in, the, in the valley. And they grew mostly rice, but they also had, um, they also had corn, they had wheat, they had walnut plantations, um, almond plantations, poplar trees. And all of this was glacier fed from the, from the stream. So it was uh, with chenar trees, it's very shady, very, um, very, uh, you know, a very warm and friendly climate. My mother's side grew up in the city and in a, in a, in a district called Kanyakado. Um, it, our family on my mom's side has writers, poets, film producers, uh, people that served in the politics, military and business. So I was very blessed to have um, to have grown up in Srinagar Valley, uh, in Kashmir Valley, but with uh, families that that uh, had very different backgrounds. Wow, that sounds like an amazing childhood. So you have to tell us some stories from when you were growing up. Uh, it's it was it was. Uh, I mean, I wish everyone had that kind of a lifestyle where you grew up with uh, ice cap mountains in the background, going to Dell Lake on the weekends, going to the, you know, the gardens, Mughal gardens. We were very blessed. We had a very a good relationship uh, growing up with our uh, Muslim majority neighbors. We grew up as one community for the most part. Um, again, this is a child's perspective of the situation. It was, it was very, um, very great and, and beautiful uh, life that I was blessed to live for a few years before coming to the U.S. Um, I know that uh, I enjoyed my, my grandfather, my mother's, uh, my maternal grandfather was a veterinarian. So he, he always had animals. We would uh, feed eagles by throwing up meat into the air. And uh, we would uh, walk uh, hiking and climb trees. We had it eagle's nest uh, next door to our home so it was a uh, really pretty like i mean i could go on but uh, that gives you a picture <laughs> oh yeah it really gives a strong picture of the connection to nature and the connection to family that was the Kashmiri culture at that time so Siddhi, i want to ask you the same question i know you grew up in the bay area but you're really connected to your Kashmiri roots so can you tell us a little bit about what you know about your family's roots in Kashmir? Absolutely. So to begin with, my my dad's side of the family is from um, Banamala, 
and my dad, my mom's side is from Haba, not Haba Pebble, sorry, Ganderbal. And my mom was, I want to say, six months when um, her family decided to move from Kashmir because uh, my Nanuji um, had many different work opportunities in India. Um, but a lot of what I know about Kashmir and about my father's side of the family is through my father, actually. Um, during COVID, I actually made him like every time we used to go out for three mile walks and I used to just make him tell me everything, um, whether that be like how he used to go from um, like a bus to like a whole different village just to meet um, someone to give sweets for something. Uh, it's just this like this connection that I have through my father of knowing of like seeing Kashmir Um more of what I know is that my family is very big. <laughs> I think every Kashmiri family is very huge. Uh, like I have like at least 15 cousins, first, second, third, I don't even know. Um, but it's, it's really, um, it's just about knowing what my parents grew up in, whether that be in Kashmir or not, just that, that Kashmiri root, that culture, like hearing Kashmiri, even the language, it just feels so homely to me. Um, that's how I've um, maintained that Kashmiri culture and that aspect in myself. Wow, that's amazing. Sounds like you're learning through Kashmir through your parents' eyes. And, yeah. you know, those same stories of that connectedness that Riji was telling us about, I can hear it in your smile. Um, so, you know, despite this amazing culture of Kashmiri Hindus, I want to now move to the very difficult topic of the ethnic cleansing in 1989 to 1990. And so, Rajiv, I know that your family was personally impacted by the events in Kashmir in 1989 to 1990, and your uncle had a close brush with a terrorist named Bitta Karate, a terrorist depicted in the movie The Kashmir Files. Even since then, you've spent decades advocating for the Kashmiri Hindu cause. So can you give me an overview of your work in this area, just so our audience can get a broad picture of not only your work, but Kashmiri Hindu advocacy in general? Uh, sure. So when I, when this occurred, it was it was sudden. It was a shock um, when my uh, relatives are telling me and I'm in the U.S. that there's people chanting on the streets, that there are mosques blaring uh, to leave, that there's uh, newspaper ads. Uh, saying that you have to leave. There's there's uh, uh, notices on doors. Uh, people are getting randomly killed and shot. Um, it's scary. And I can tell you when I was there in the summer of 1989, uh, at that time, there were already a few bomb blasts. And I found out later on that I was actually tracked by the JKLF militants uh, when I was there in the summer, the Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front militants. My whole family was when we were traveling together. Um, they were just waiting for the orders. Uh, so I was fortunate to have come back, uh, but my family got caught up in this and I've written extensively about my uncle having an assassination attempt. Um, and, uh, and when I came to the, when I was in the U.S. advocating for this, the biggest thing that was a shock for me was just how much people didn't know or were, uh, were bought into a narrative that was being pitched uh, by, um, by the militants. So Barbara Crossett was a, was a reporter for the New York Times. I remember being here and hearing all this from my family, what they're going through. And she's interviewing these terrorists in Kashmir. They're welcoming home. They're serving her kahava, which is Kashmiri chai. And, uh, and she's calling them freedom fighters. And, and I'm hearing this other version from my family. So I spent 30 years advocating for the perspective of the Kashmiri Hindus that fled. Um, that includes congressional briefings and includes um, op-eds and includes, uh, you know, working with elected officials to pass 
uh, resolutions, uh, back channel diplomacy with the U.S. State Department, um, working with speeches um, my, that my uncles have given to the United Nations Human Rights Commission and the Hague Appeal for Peace, um, symposiums in the U.S. Uh, at institutes like uh, at, at universities like Rice University. Um, so a lot of work that we've done to raise the issue over the 30 years. Um, and, and I've made that my life's mission. It's amazing. And, and I want to get into this a little bit later, but the Kashmiri Hindu community has has had to advocate so hard for their families and for their community. And despite that fact, a lot of people are not aware, even Hindus are not always aware of the details of this. So I want to get into that more later. But first, Sudhi, can you tell me a little bit about how these events impacted you growing up? I know your family was deeply impacted by the events in 1990 and the story of your aunt, Tiku is depicted through the character Sharda Pandit in the movie. Since you were grew, born and grew up way after this time, how did you learn about these events? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, most of what I know is through my father. Um, and um, obviously he lived through all of this. I want to say when 2000, I was 10 years old when I first heard my, heard my dad speaking about this. And he told my, my nanny, my mom's mom, that he was on a hit list. 10-year-old Sidney really could not understand how that brutal extent of what be, what what does it mean like being on a hit list, you know? Um, and then 2017, like social media, Instagram, I was reading a post about a woman named Girjatiku and her brutal murder. And I was in shock as to how such an, an inhumane act was performed. And till this day, no one ever want to acknowledge it or no one even want to talk about it. In fact, under those posts, I was reading things like she deserved that. I was like, no woman, no person, no one ever deserves such behavior. And um, when I, I mean, 2017, when I re- read the name Girjat Tiku, I didn't even know she was my bua. 2021, Jan 19th, I read that same post to my dad and he looked at me with a pale face and like, 30 seconds of silence. And he told me that was his sister. And I was like, for four years, I've known about this woman and didn't even know that she was, she's family, you know? Cause back then I was like, I wonder what her fam, what her family went through. And all along I was her family, you know? And so like for like, I want to say hours straight, those four years of knowing she was my aunt, I was crying. And, um, I've, for the longest time, what I've known about Kashmir is through social media. I feel like social media is a big aspect for youth and for Kashmiri pundits now. So it has impacted my life emotionally, but it does make me very strong because I've used the this, this same social media platform to share as much as I can, regardless of the hate and like terrible comments I receive. I just like keep moving forward and make sure that it doesn't affect me. Well, thank you. Thank you both for standing up despite this incredible, you know, trauma that your community has faced, that your families have faced. I mean, you know, certainly after learning about this through the Kashmir files, a lot of Hindus are feeling more motivated to reach out to Kashmiri Hindus and provide them their support. So I want to now turn to talking a little bit more about the Kashmir files, because despite the fact that Kashmiri Hindus have been speaking about this for such a long time, the Kashmir files, which came out in just this uh, past month in March, really brought this into the fore and really brought it to the attention of Hindus all around the world. So uh, this question is for both of you. What was your first thought after watching the Kashmir files? 
Um, I was, um, I was actually here. I was here with the producer in Dallas with, uh, Vivek Agniho 3G, uh, and his wife and their daughter. So we had a chance to actually, uh, have them introduce the film, watch it, and then talk directly with them. So it was an amazing opportunity. Um, and it was, it was actually very cathartic. Um, I was stunned. I was blown away that this was finally the truth that uh, we had experienced. You know, there's a lot of aspects of the Kashmiri issue. Uh, and what I've been fighting for for 30 years was finally on film. Um, it was really, I mean, it's still very emotional that it took that 32 years um, to have this story come out. So I was just really overcome with emotion. And, um, and I was still, was very, um, but I was very empowered. Like Cindy said, I was very energized. I was very uh, excited that uh, we could finally um, get justice, right? Um, get vindication uh, for what we've been through because uh, people just didn't believe us. They thought we were making it up. They thought that these things that happened were uh, dramatic, you know, how you tend to dramatize things over the, over the years and that these are tall tales. And what I appreciate about Vivekji was that he went through and did an extraordinary process of interviewing hundreds and hundreds of people, including my father, um, and to get stories of what, what happened. And these stories made themselves, made their way into this film. So, um, so it's, it's that process that he did, that painstaking process to tell our story that it was just, it it was a rush of emotion. It was, it was, it was, uh, you know, vindication. It was sadness. It was uh, the the rage again. It was the, uh, it was just going through, I can't even describe the hundred emotions, but finally it came to a sense of peace. It was, it was a very, uh, you know, very cathartic experience. Wow. CZG, what about you? Yeah, I was going to say exactly same emotions. Definitely um, what I felt after knowing that Girjatiku is my bua. um, And then um, for like two days, I had this anger in me. And so it was the same thing after watching the Kashmir Files, like so many questions and like so many emotions. And it was just this for, for one, I could not even watch most of the Kashmir Files because of how because that's what happened. It's so hard to show like the, I don't even know how to say it, but like for people that have watched the movie, you'll understand that, that if you know the story of Girjatigu, seeing that on screen, it was hard for me. And um, definitely while coming out of the movie, um, I was just looking at my dad, even watching the movie. I was just looking at my dad every five seconds, making sure everything was fine. But um, after watching the movie and like, I had a question asked that like describe the movie in one word. And I was like, truth, it's the truth. Like there's nothing in the movie that is false. This has happened. And we literally have a generation that has been saying this for 32 years, what has happened to us. So definitely a a really mixed amount of emotions after watching the movie. Yeah. I, I can't imagine you know, have, I can't imagine the experience that both of you have gone through. And even for me, you know, I have been learning about Kashmir in the past few years, more and more, uh, especially since I joined the Hindu American foundation. And at points I had to close my eyes and literally plug my ears because I couldn't handle seeing that extent of violence. And so, you know, I can only imagine, I mean, obviously experiencing it firsthand, 
which so many Kashmiri Hindus have gone through. And then now the generational trauma that continues, it's, it's such a huge, um, it's such a huge thing. And I'm so glad that the Kashmir Files has come out and provided this opportunity to extend the conversation and broaden it. So all Hindus are aware of this issue. Um, so what are some of the experiences that your families faced in Kashmir that you feel the Kashmir Files represented well? Because you said, Siddhiji, that, you know, this is true. So what in particular was represented well? I think um, just um, to, to begin with, the characters depicted in the Kashmir Files is not just one particular family. Um, like Sharda Pandit plays, obviously, Gerja Tiku, as one can say from her death, and also the wife of the lawyer who was, if, if you guys remember in the beginning, the one who was shot in the rice drum. Um, she depicts two different characters. Characters. So all like the main five characters involved the funded family. It's basically the entire Kashmiri Hindu population that was um, forced into exile or murder or converted. Um, there's I don't think anything in the Kashmir files that wasn't depicted properly. Uh, everything was so, as you said, violent and so gruesome and bloody. Like there, there's no other terms to use these terms, but um, a lot of what was shown I feel like it was to the point and there's nothing that one can say that, oh, I wish this was better because to begin with, this is not a Bollywood film. You're not going to expect a five minute long narration dance of Kashmiri Pandit's dancing. Um, 1989 to 1990, I don't think there was one time Kashmiri Pandit's families could have sat and celebrated Shivaratri, celebrated Navratri, which is a big thing for all of us. What about you, Rajiv? Uh, I think the movie depicted, it, I, I've watched the movie twice, um, and I will tell you that the movie depicts a lot more than people give it credit for. Um, the first time you see the brutality and the shock of it, but I urge everyone to watch it twice because there are so many subtleties. Um, and, um, you know, Vivek G had had encouraged me uh, when he was here to, and we discussed a little bit of it, but he didn't want to give it away. So, so that, that, that piqued my curiosity. And when I watched it the second time, I picked up a lot more. Um, and so back to what Siddhi was saying was that it depicts a lot of things and, and, and one character plays multiple characters in real life, but also little scenes like, um, you know, when, uh, when we, in the beginning of the movie, there's, and I don't want to give it away, but there's kids playing, right. And there was some uh, reaction towards one of the kids when, um, there was a cricket game and India won, right? Um, there's uh, those little things, they happen. And so there's a lot of subtleties in the movie um, that were depicted. It just uh, the little discrimination. Like, we you know, one of the things that happened when people were fleeing in, in, 19, uh, in, in January 1990, they were having a hard time getting gas at the gas station, the patrol pumps, uh, because the locals didn't want to give it to the pundits that were fleeing. So little, you know, bits of discrimination that were happening um, um, that were subtle were, were actually shown in movie in various different ways. So I think it, it did a lot for, um, for, and, and that's why for, for people that lived it, it's, it's so deep because you know that there's the stuff that everyone sees. And then there's the stuff that you see like the life in the camps after you left. I mean, it was that way. There were scorpions there. There were snakes there. People were dying of heat because we didn't have heat like that. All that was depicted in the movie. Okay, so I I think you both of you are really, really clear that the Kashmir Files does a really good job of representing so many different elements of what happened during the ethnic cleansing 
and after. But is there anything that was left out? Well, I'll tell you that, you know, it's, it's funny because there's, uh, there's been criticism that, you know, the movie, you know, is one-sided. It didn't mention this. It didn't mention that. It didn't get into how Article 370 created uh, animosity among the majority against the Hindus. It's a three-hour movie describing, a two-hour and 15-minute movie describing a period of years that have not been discussed before. Uh, just think about that. Yeah, if you want to do a docu-series on this, be my guest. And I think what happened in Kashmir, I think taking the Kashmir files and making it into a webcast series is something that Vivek Ji has recently talked about. I think it's a great idea because there's a lots of layers in this from what happened to the underlying causes to uh, how it was hidden later on by the forces that, again, the movie gets into a little bit, but you can't get into every little aspect of it. So I think if you're going to ask me what the movie left out, not much for a two hour and 15 minute movie, but could it have gone in, could, could an extended, you know, part two or, or, a, or a webcast series go into some of the more nuance under, uh, you know, the layers of it? Absolutely. You know, are there, um, you know, subtle co or complex relationships between the, the majority and the minority uh, and between the Shias and the Sunnis and, and the pundits and the Sikhs that didn't come out in the movie? Of course not, but they can in a, in a more extended, you know, uh, webcast series or docuseries. Right. So there's a lot more to what happened in Kashmir. And I think that's something that people who have watched the film should take away. Uh, I think, you know, you said it really well, but it's just two hours and 50 minutes. So there's not, you know, it's, it's exceeded, you know, what a two hour and 50 minute uh, film can do, but there's so much more that there's so much more that has happened. Um, and, and, that definitely needs to be addressed. But you mentioned some of the criticisms of Kashmir files. And so I wanted to ask you more about that. Um, some of the editorials claiming that it is Islamophobic or has spurred violence against Muslims in India have gained some traction. And I'm wondering if you feel those criticisms are justified. Siddhi, you want to you go, go on that one first? Definitely would want to talk about this because I have been called Islamophobe many times, um, which I don't understand. Because if you look at it from someone reading a post about talking about anybody who faced this trauma, nowhere in my post or anybody who has mentioned says that, OK, this community has targeted me. It's honestly the way how you interpret it, because you know that this community has oppressed the Kashmiri pundits. You automatically are going to go through this whole process saying that Kashmiri pundits are using this for India to go against um, like JKLF or the radicalized Islamic terrorists that are like still living in Kashmir after taking out of taking everything that we have basically happened that ha that we have basically gone through. And I don't think any of these criticisms are justified. If you want to like put it side to side, Islamophobia versus a oh, full on ethnic genocide that has been happening to Kashmir pundits since 1300 by the same majority group in Kashmir, then I feel like it's just, it contradicts each other. And it just, you can't wrap your head around something like that, which I don't believe that Kashmiri pundits or myself or anyone who talks about Kashmiri Hindus should be labeled as Islamophobe or should be called this is like propaganda or that this is for elections in India. This is merely 1% of what we got. If, if someone watched the Kashmir files, it's just 1%. Like 1989 is nothing compared to the genocide since 1300. Yeah, I'll also add that, 
you know, you have to look at this in the right context. So the movie is about Kashmiri Hindus and what we face, right? Yes, a lot of Muslims died. Even the main character in the Kashmir Files at, towards the end acknowledges that moderate Muslims, people that stood, stood for secularism were also killed. But that story has been told. Human rights groups have covered that story. They have not covered this story. So that's why, you know, it takes on the framework that it does. But, you know, if you have a movie about the Holocaust and they're talking about what the Germans did, does that make the movie anti-German? You know, why are we taking it to that extent? Um, you know, were there uh, Muslims that helped their their uh, pundit neighbors? Absolutely. But there are also men. There are also ones that betrayed us, as the movie showed, um, including what uh, happened to Sidi's uh, Bua and the, the, the character in the beginning opening scene of the movie. Uh, those are people that were betrayed uh, by by their colleagues. That happened also. So I don't think you can fault the movie for showing one side. I think it's very easy to say, um, uh, as some historians have said, there show all sides. That's absolutely fine. But please don't knock us for showing our side and calling that Islamophobia. When, you know, if a mosque blared, I can't tell you that it didn't. Okay. That doesn't mean that, that everyone in the mosque, you know, it felt that way, but that's what the mosques blared. So, you know, it's exactly what Sidi said. It's how you want to take it. But even Vivek Ji himself has said, look, there were Muslims that made this movie. Okay. One of the key people in this movie that made this movie was a Muslim. So there was, there's, uh, there's, there, and there's actually Muslims, uh, political leaders right now, um, in Javed Bey, who's head of, who's in the, the People's Democratic Front Party of Kashmir, has come out and said, this movie is accurate. So I acknowledge it. I was there. I saw this happen. Um, so I don't think that you can call it Islamophobic. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm so moved by both of your responses. It's so clear. And so I think a lot of what calling, you know, the stories of Hindu victims does, um, calling it Islamophobic, I think what that does is delegitimizes the st those stories. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely in full agreement with both of you that it's such, such a, you know, it's such an unnecessary accusation that doesn't do a lot. Um, to, and it won't erase the truth of what happened, but it will demonize, I think, the victims um, who are speaking out about their stories. And so one of the other ways that this happens, so there's a demonization of Hindus, Hindu victims specifically and saying, you know, oh, when they say this, they're actually, it's actually you know, somehow problematic or them sharing their stories is somehow violent towards another group. But then there's the other side where people are claiming, and I've heard this from, you know, in some pockets, of course, Hindus in general know that the Kashmir files is depicting reality. There's some pockets and some groups that are actually trying to claim that this is myth or a propaganda film. What would your response to them be? So uh, it's, it's the first thing that came out was uh, right after the movie came out was that there weren't all these people that left uh, or that they left uh, voluntarily. Right. They, they migrated. Um, and so the the people that were trying to throw that myth out, um, that's the myth. Right. They were trying to say that what we were showing was was the myth. We're showing um, articles and they were re referring to the the uh, the biased media references of, of the years, uh, but they weren't showing the what the India's Human Rights Commission showed, which is that you know there was this was a near genocide, or that 
you know, there was a sexist. They weren't showing the documentation from international observers that went to Kashmir, to Delhi in the 19, to Jammu in the 1990s and documented that hundreds of thousands of people were forced to leave. And then also documented that Jagmohan, Governor Jagmohan wasn't the one that told them to leave. They weren't showing the newspaper articles, which I've posted on social media, where it says Jagmohan requests the Kashmiri Hindus to stay in the valley, right? So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that, uh, to call out what, what they're saying, but the narrative has been so strong for 30 years that it's easy for them to try to pitch it again. Um, so that one myth is that, you know, we migrated and that's been, that's been, um, thrown out of the water in the movie, as well as, um, as well as with the, with the data that's, that's been unearthed since then. The other myth that is uh, something that I hear often is that, um, that you know, all these only eighty nine people died, and that was a uh, that was a that was a political party in 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 India that actually put that out on Twitter right away. There's this document, and look, only eighty nine people died because yeah, you can go to a battle zone, you can go to a terror zone, um, and you can actually count bodies because they were, we were all reporting them to the police. Uh, you know, we didn't care about the fact that they were telling us if you come near the body, we're going to kill you too, right? It's just so ridiculous what they're what they're claiming um, is is uh, is a myth. So I think the, the 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 greater point is that these myths that are there about the movie are coming from a narrative that has been by by forces that were the same forces that wanted to hide what happened uh, and that did not want to acknowledge because it it for two reasons one is they there was they they wanted to portray the terrorist freedom fighters right that's one one group and then the other group are the ones that that. Want, knew what happened, but didn't want to acknowledge it because they didn't want to take responsibility. They didn't want to have to say they were fighting us from putting this, from getting, um, you know, refugee status or getting internally displaced people status or getting, um, you know, a status that would give us uh, recognition internationally, uh, genocide recognition, ethno cleansing recognition, whatever you call it. But the, the, it was people that the government didn't want to get called out for the fact that they failed because we're Hindu. So there were many forces at play over here and the myths that are coming, the people that are calling the movie a myth are the same ones that are, you know, that are referencing that kind of uh, erroneous narrative. And calling it a political narrative rather than a recounting of facts. I think that's the biggest thing is saying this is a myth and it, its purpose is politics. Is it, to it, it, in fact, one of the myths was that, you know, this was done because the uh, it was going to help the elections. Um, this movie was in production for years. It got delayed because of COVID. Um, you know, the interviews, the hundreds of interviews were done years ago. So it's not, it had nothing to do with the elections. Now, are political parties uh, playing up the movie or using it to their advantage? Sure. But that happens in every country, happens everywhere. Um, you know, movies that have a certain uh, government or patriot, patriotic line or whatever are played up by different groups and different entities and different agencies uh, everywhere throughout the world. But the truth is the truth. And we're just happy that the truth is there and we're going to fight the people like Sydney and I were from two different generations. Uh, we're still going to fight the fight the myths that are being propagated about this movie, because frankly, the data proves otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. Sydney, I want to hear your answer to this question. Um, I just wanted to go back to what Rajiv Uncle said about a myth of like only 89 people dying. If 
people do do their research. If you guys have watched the Kashmir files as well, they they bring up something called the Bata Mazar, where hundreds of Kashmiri pundits were drowned by being tied amongst each other and drowned in the dull lake, where where people actually say that you could see like nirvins coming up and floating on the water, or like yons of Kashmiri pundit men, of men, and it's just it's hard to see that people are wanting to call what families have gone through for centuries a myth mainly because a lot of them have been documented like Rajiv uncle said that there are literally pictures of articles saying that Kashmiri pundits leave or your children are next like leave your wives here and leave you know it's not like this stuff has not been said like an incident that I remember my dad telling me about of like the fear that was instilled in women that um have a have poison in your hand or have a knife in your hand to get rid of yourself before jihadists can get to you it's it's just this fear that people want to like not even acknowledge it's just it's hard sometimes it's very emotional maybe like coming from me i'm a very emotional person i like love my kashmir funded culture and my family and like what just knowing that this has happened and people still want to call it like fake or that this was bound to happen or you deserve this it's just like what what made us deserve this is like the first question that i want to ask like we did not pick up a gun that's the first thing a lot of people say that kashmiri hindus never picked up a gun there are still people like who are living in camps and we are known as the invisible refugees because we were literally refugees living in our own country and no one even knew about it until now it's been 32 years and i can just say that the kashmir files has sparked a little recognition amongst the kashmir funded community and communities amongst us but- uh, this is, you know, so heartbreaking to hear all of these very real facts that you're recounting and the ways that people deny it. And Sidiji, as you mentioned, you're, you know, sharing this and you're very vocal on social media, but you were maliciously attacked um, on social media recently. And so how did that make you feel? Can you walk us through that a little bit? Definitely. So after I posted um, my story or just just this urge of um, urging everyone to watch the Kashmir files, I received a comment, uh, not a comment, a DM. I received hundreds of DMs. I just read them. A lot of what I get is definitely negative. I read them. I was like, okay, what are you trying to prove here? Like, I'm so sorry, but you did not go through this. You are in no position to call what Kashmiri pundits have faced false or um, Islamophobic or propaganda. Um, I received a comment that said, a DM, a direct message that said that I am selling my Bua story for profit and that I am being um, paid to spread Islamophobia. That was the one comment that really got to me because she did call me a lot of things. (laughs) It was not just that. If I pull up screenshots, she said some very bad words and don't want to say them. But it's not like um, it affected me. But when you do go on my family and when you do go on someone's values and beliefs and just fully like target them for something that happened to them and play the victim card, that's where I'm like, no, let's reset. Because the thing is that the truth is so bitter that people just don't want to accept it. People just be like, no, that didn't happen. Like, don't even listen to them. Or they just want to throw like cards in our face saying that propaganda, myth, hoax, um, all this did not happen. But I feel like the generation that I've grown up with, seeing how my my parents, every single Kashmiri funded family has like started from zero to like where they are now. I just have this um, strength in myself where I'm like, 
this is just a waste of time. You know, there's, there's no way that I'm actually going to put my effort into educating someone of um, something that's like in front of their eyes where they want to read it and still interpret something totally different out of it. So my knowing myself, I was like, this comment is just it's just not going to get the best of me. I'm just going to leave it at where she is. She's going to have the time of her life. And I actually did share that comment. And like, I didn't have to do anything about it because when people saw what she said to me, they're like, how? <laughs> like, they couldn't even wrap their heads around it, you know, because after reading my story, not one person would probably say that. Sydney is being Islamophobic by sharing how her bua was murdered. If you read my post, nowhere do I say who murdered her or like which community murdered her. It was just this, this like sincere um, plea for everyone to like watch the film. You know, it's not like I'm saying go out and protest amongst everyone that Kashmiri pundits have been going through this terrible genocide. It was more like a request. And like, I was, if I were to, I would like go on my knees and fold my hands and ask everyone to watch this movie. But people do take it wrong. And it's at, at that time, you can't be like, oh, this is my fault. No, it's your fault. And like, it's, it, it is it is what it is, you know. And that's what the film says, that you can't like portray Kashmiri pundits in the like the wrong light and play the victim card when the Kashmiri pundits are the ones who got who went through everything. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. And I know it's constant with social media that people constantly voicing their opinions. And when it's targeted in that way, it gets even harder. And Rajiv, that's something that happened to you. And I think even, I mean, they were really coming after you. It was vicious. Um, I I will tell you that I was uh, shocked. Um, You know, when you look at it from a big picture perspective, we all now know the Holocaust occurred, but you know, when the Jews came here and described what happened to them, one, they didn't, it was hard for them to talk about it, but when they did, they were told the same thing. There was a lot of Holocaust denial back then. I mean, there's, you know, there's crazy stuff now, but back then, um, it, you know, until people went back and found these concentration camps to back up the stories, they were facing, you know, um, that, that same issue. So I know there's this, people just have a hard time believing how cruel humans can be. And what bothers me about these attacks is we're just, just like Cindy mentioned, we're just talking about our story. We're talking about what happened. And what happened to me is something that I'm still in shock by. This happened by, by a journalist. Um, I was, I, and one of the things that we've talked about is how important truth and reconciliation is, but you cannot have fake reconciliation without sharing the truth. And that means from all sides. I mean, I know there's multiple sides. There's our side. There's people that have lived in Kashmir after we left, what they went through. Um, so that all needs to be shared. And that, that, that process is important to healing and going forward. You cannot go forward in denial and, and just shove it under the rug and pretend like it's all going to be fine because these issues will, will, will stir up and, and fester. And we've seen conflicts that have raged that have you know, gone on for, for centuries in other places because they never really addressed it. Right. So I asked a question to viewers that had seen the movie. It was a simple question, which is what was the strongest emotion you felt after seeing the movie? Uh, one word. So I had hundreds of responses of people and, and uh, many of them put in one word like rage, hopelessness, sadness, shock. Um, uh, so some people wrote things like, I can't believe I didn't know about it. Um, so, you know, I took a lot of these phrases and I put them into a single word or emotion. 
So this one person said that, um, you know, to pay them back a hundredfold in their own coin. Well, that's very strong. What emotion did that person feel? Um, you know, it could be rage. It could be uh, punishment. It could be vengeance. It could be revenge. But the right word that I was looking for that describes this from a justice perspective is retribution. So I took that phrase and I said, the emotion that you're trying to display here is really one of retributive justice or retribution. And uh, that's why I put the word retribution and a thumbs up because I took that and put it into one word. And that's exactly what my question asked. Look at my question. What was your single emotion? Not what do you want to do? Okay. It was, what is the emotion you felt? If you feel rage, does that mean you're going to go out and start, you know, killing people? No, you feel this intense emotion. And it's very important for us to, you know, unleash this emotion after 32 years, you know? So, uh, so that was what, what I uh, was, what I said was uh, this, this is, this, this feeling is retribution. And uh, immediately uh, I had uh, a, a journalist named Rakib Nayak, who said that Raji Pandit is calling out for uh, a Muslim genocide, endorsing a Muslim genocide, mass murder. There's other people who said mass murder and they tagged my hospitals. So nowhere in my social media do I put my hospitals. I put the organizations I work for because my social media page is about my individual work and my, my work with nonprofits and human rights groups. And that is all over. So this person actually went and found where I work tag those facilities and then put endorsing uh, Muslim genocide when I neither use the word Muslim nor genocide. It's exactly what Sidi said. She was talking about her own experience. I was talking about the experience that people uh, had felt after this movie. Um, and that is very important in terms of, in terms of the reconciliation process, right? The, the healing process. Um, and for that, I received, you know, hate, hate messages. I received uh, calls to my office. I received videos sent to my office. They were, they were, they were, they were good videos, videos about showing that, you know, there's a way forward. Exactly. That's what I, that's what I advocate. But there were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of condemnation. There was one star reviews on my website, what patients use to come to see me. So there's a direct attack on my livelihood that was, ex that was intended. And this is exactly, ironically, exactly what our community faced and why we were kicked out, right? It was to erase who we are, erase our livelihood, start over. We had, you know, people that had degrees in colleges, physicians, you know, authors, writers that were living in camps. There were nobody all of a sudden that lost all dignity. Um, and that's exactly what the, the opposition want, is making us do again. And I actually want to turn this back to you, um, Deepali, because, you know, you are someone that is the director of human rights for Hindu American Foundation. You're not a Kashmiri, but you're very much touched by the injustice in the field of human rights. Uh, you've talked a lot about how important it is to advocate for the human rights of, of everyone that suffered, uh, especially for being Hindu, whether it was in, in Bangladesh or whether it was in, uh, whether it's the Pakistani Hindus. And, and, you, and I'm, I'm just so touched by the, by the work that you've done uh, to, to advocate for Kashmiri Hindus. So I wanted to know, you know, what you've done is specifically recently, you actually uh, submitted a paper uh, called uh, the epistemic injustice towards Kashmiri Hindus. And I was just very touched by the academic approach that you took, the research you did uh, to, to bring this out into the, into the academic um, forum in the U.S. So if you could share a little bit about your, uh, your work in this regard. Yeah, sure. The interviewer becomes the interviewed. So, uh, 
yeah, this this was a, a short paper for the Understanding Hindu Phobia Conference that was put on by Hindu Students Council. And essentially, um, after seeing all of the ways in which Hindus, you know, regardless, without exception, all Hindu victims are disregarded. It's almost as if when there's a Hindu victim, it needs to somehow be verified by a non-Hindu source that did this person actually die, regardless of the parents are, you know, attending the funeral, there's, there needs to be some external verification. And this continuous disqualification of Hindus as victims was really getting to me. But when I saw the Kashmir files and the onslaught of just, you know, epistemic injustice that I was seeing, I was really, really even more um, just shocked and dismayed at how this way of using words was trying to erase the history of a people. And so there was this academic um, philosopher, American philosopher named Miranda Fricker, who articulated uh, this idea of epistemic injustice. And one of the two forms of epistemic injustice is testimonial. So testimonial injustice happens when somebody is saying what happens to them and you automatically discredit them. And just to put it really, really in simple terms, and I hope um, Dr. Fricker would accept my, you know, uh, layman's terms definition, just immediately disqualifying what someone says, you know, as they're saying it because of who they are. And that's exactly what is happening to Kashmiri Hindu victims when they're saying this has happened to me and it's completely disqualified. But more than that, it's portrayed as violence, that saying I'm a victim is somehow inherently violent towards another group, which is absolutely absurd. You would never see this to be the case, but that's definitely the case with Hindu victims and especially Kashmiri Hindus whose entire histories and voices and experiences to this day are being disregarded and called uh violence against Muslims. I mean, nowhere is this more apparent than Rajiv in your own story, where somebody is saying, you know, this is genocide when you're like, oh, well, you know, I looked up the definition of retribution. It's a legal, <laughs> there's a legal term, you know, it's a legal backing for, you know, so many different systems of law. It's, it's not something that's inherently violent. It doesn't need to be, but by calling, by saying that, oh, I'm going to pay, I want to pay them back. Cause I remember the person that had, you know, that you were saying retribution and thumbs up to, they had said, um, to pay them back in their own point. They didn't specify, like Subhi you mentioned before, they don't, you know, you're not specifying who this is. The interpretation was that this was all Muslims, but all Muslims were not the perpetrators of the crime. There were specific terrorists um, that were perpetrators. Moderate Muslims and people that were sympathetic towards Hindus were also targets. And so to portray this as violence towards all Muslims is itself Islamophobia and trying to paint all Muslims as in inherently violent and part of the problem, which is not what you have said. It's not what Kashmir Files has said. It's not what Hindu victims in general are saying, but that's continuously how it's painted in order to completely silence Hindu victims. And I could go on and on about this, but this interview is not about me. It's about both of you. So I'm going to bring this back to the topic at hand. Okay. So Siddhi, so I actually wanted yeah. to just say one thing about that, which is um, you're absolutely right. So the the person, Rakib Nayak, inter interpreted this as against all Muslims when when one of the one of the biggest injustices for us 
and, and Sydney and I share this is that the, the people that perpetrated this against my uncle and her family, um, they're, they're still out. They're out on the streets. They're, they're, they're walking. They've, they've lived their life for 32 years. They've made, they've made millions of, of rupees. They've actually owned multiple properties. They are, uh, they received a hero's welcome when being released from jail, even after acknowledging killing dozens and dozens of Kashmiri pundits. Um, um, and so that's, that's where that retribution comes from. It's, it's exactly what you said. These are people that are still, and I mean, that just that feeling that we have of, of that we're here suffering and my, someone else died instead of my uncle. And now his, it, you know, we're feeling the guilt of being alive because, you know, the, the terrorists killed the wrong person and he is out free, got garlanded when he got out of jail is living and married. Um, that that's exactly what what we're talking about when we talk about retribution. Absolutely, I'm 100% for retribution. Um, I'm 100% for truth. I'm 100% for reconciliation. And I also want to acknowledge the many Muslims that have died defending Kashmir, that have died uh, in uh, in the just the past few weeks. In in addition to the pundits being targeted, still as of this past week, there are Muslims that have been defending the pundits you know, in law enforcement that have been killed. So for anyone to take this and make it about Islamophobia is absolutely ridiculous. Did religion play a role? Yes, religion played a role because we were targeted because of religious fanaticism. But please do not make that about Islamophobia. I'm sorry for for having to throw that in, but I felt it was very important to add that. I also... I also wanted to actually, you know, go back to, 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 to Siddhi. You know, Siddhi, you and I, um, before I even knew... Girja, I think it was your bua. You and I worked together closely last year with the India's COVID crisis, right? So you're part of the Kashmir Overseas Association youth um, yeah, youth chapter, and I was working as, and I am still working as the medical director of, of KOA. And that's actually where we met. And I was just really impressed and amazed by your passion and your dedication, and of all the KPU that that really literally saved lives during the COVID crisis, regardless of religion, right? Um, we were giving medical advice uh, to, to people as physicians, but the KOA youth, the KP youth, were helping us get oxygen, were helping us get critical supplies, we're finding beds in ICUs and hospitals. That was so important. And, you know, you, like you said, you grew up here, you grew up in the Bay Area, you've heard these stories from your family, and yet you have this amazing dedication and passion. So I want to ask you, when are you planning uh, to visit uh, India and specifically to visit Kashmir? Any thought about that? I know it would be very emotional and very difficult, but any ideas? Yes. So whenever I go to India, it's always Jammu or Delhi. I've never crossed the Kashmir border, even though Jammu is so close. But um, I have told my father I am only going to go when he goes. And it's been 32 years. Um, he left probably 33 at the end of this year because he left uh, December of 1989, considering he was one of the first members who of his family who wanted who was targeted. And so I told my dad that as soon as you have the guts to go, I will also because I want to say maybe like 25 years after he was thrown out, he was he said that. He was very close to Kashmir. He was in Kashmir somewhere, but he just did not have the courage to step out. You know, like imagine just being in the home you were raised in, the the the, the streets, the roads you were raised in, that freshness of air, and still being scared to go out. It's just that 
he was like probably 17 years old when he left and now he's like a father too so it's just hard knowing that he he still wants to go back and I know that I definitely will want to only go with him because I just know I'm going to be crying like just just tears coming out of my eyes, even though I don't have that, that personal connection my dad has with home or that any Kashmiri Pandit has with what they call home. Just definitely seeing my father in the place he grew up with for so many years, that's when I'll be able to have that courage and strength to go with him. That's, that's wonderful. I really encourage you to, um, I, I plan on going back this year. Uh, it's been held out because of COVID. Uh, I think it's going to be, um, a wonderful experience for all of us that, uh, have to go back. It's, it's, you know, very emotional, but I think it's also very important in terms of our healing and our ability to reconcile what happened with our future, um, and for the preservation of our amazing, amazing heritage, which, uh, it just, it shocks me that people are right now finding out how important Kashmir was for the, um, the development of, of, you know, Sanskrit grammar, for poetry, for uh, sciences, for Shaivism, uh, for many things that are part of, of what uh, makes Hinduism um, such a, you know, such a, 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 a all-encompassing or a very holistic, uh, comprehensive, uh, you know, philosophy. So, um, yeah, that would be wonderful. I can't wait to hear about when, when you do go back with your father. This has been an amazing podcast and I've really felt um, the emotional journey that both of you are on. And, you know, I'm so grateful that you've been telling your stories and your family's stories because it's people like you that are making sure that this doesn't continue to happen to Kashmir Hindus today. And this is definitely still a problem in Kashmir. They're still targeting of Hindus. Hindus are still in camps, as you mentioned, Suziji in India today as internally displaced persons and domicile laws don't do enough to address it. So there's so much work that needs to be done. And um, one of the places that folks can go to learn more about the work that needs to be done and the work that is being done is our iheartkashmir.org. So definitely um, put that in and stay, uh, stay tuned to what HAF has planned for the future. So with that, I'd like to ask the final question to Rajiv and Siddhi. What are your hopes for the Kashmiri Hindu funded community in the future? Siddhi, you want to go first? Yes. My, my, what I have is again, just a plea to everyone um, to not stop talking about what we went through um, directly to the Indian media. Like don't push our stories back because back in October, 2021, there were again, killings of Kashmiri pundits, but the Indian media really wanted to just cover what was happening to Shah Rukh Khan's son. And so this is just my, my plea that don't consider us outsiders. We live in the same country as you guys. We want to have that recognition and we're not asking for anything more. The genocide has happened, is still happening. I mean, three days ago, there was a shopkeeper in Kashmir who was literally shot and he's still in critical conditions. Like Kashmiri pundits, what they've been going through since 1300, they're still going through it now. But that doesn't mean that we don't talk about it. Please, please keep talking about it. Um, and like as Kashmiri pundits, like we've never been silenced. We've always said what we have to say about our past, but don't push us aside, you know? Let us talk, listen to us, understand us, and play, make something out of it. Like, please don't push us aside. 
I would add that uh, my hope for our community is that uh, we're able to go back with dignity, not just go back, but go back with dignity. Um, you know, we, we were, uh, we had land, we had homes, we had orchards, we, um, you know, were, were contributing to poetry, arts, film. And, uh, and right now we're still, even though the government allocated 30,000 jobs for us, it's stuck in bureaucracy in terms of getting those jobs, getting land back. Um, so I would, I, my hope is that we go back. Uh, we've had, uh, there was, there, this our, is our seventh exodus and we've always come back. Uh, but it's very important that, uh, you know, our story has to be told. It has to be acknowledged. And then the steps need to be done to ensure our safe return. Um, I do feel that that will happen in our lifetime. Um, but I do feel like that, that we do need to continue to advocate for that. A lot of times emotions open up doors, but the door doesn't stay open and you don't walk through it unless there's a continued force to, to make that happen. I also want to add one more thing Deepali, that you said, which is uh, the internally displaced people says we don't have that status. We are internally displaced, but officially we don't have that status. Uh, and that's, that's part of the problem. That's why we haven't had the, um, the proper rehabilitation uh, afterwards. And, you know, some people have said, you know, we've done enough, you know, have you, I mean, in America, here we are talking about slavery and, and what, what's happened to the native Americans and the African Americans community here. And, you know, have we really done enough? Have we really explored that? So I, I think that until we're back, until we're, uh, you know, living there as we did, um, I don't think you can, you can say that the issue is, is done. We, we can go back right now. People have, I plan on going, but we don't want to go as tourists. We live there. We were the indigenous people of Kashmir. We are the aborigines of Kashmir. We deserve our right to go back and to continue to the, contribute to the great civilization that is part and parcel of India. The idea that Kashmir is separate from India is a Western construct created by the British who made a deal with Maharaja Hari Singh as if they had any right to sell this. It was not theirs. So we have to get out of this Western construct. Kashmir is a part and parcel of, of India for thousands of years. And Kashmiri pundits, the Hindus of Kashmir, are part of that land. It's, 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 it's all one. And uh, I can't wait for to go back as someone who can live there freely. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.